Hey everyone, thanks for joining. Today we are doing Investing 101 and I will be speaking with Scott Poor. He is the Chief Investment Officer for the Eudaimonia Group. Uh, the thought for the day, you have heard a lot of these concepts and these terms. Uh, we have more jargon in the financial industry than doctors do in the medical industry. So we're gonna be breaking down three basic terms, equities, fixed income, and alternative investments. So the thought for the day, Think about these terms and do your best to just kind of listen to what we have and to say and understand them. And the action is go forth and utilize this information to make decisions on whether it's your 401k allocation or your investment allocation. But just know that this is Investing 101. We will also have Investing 102 and other classes afterwards to talk about these terms in more depth um, and then talk about applications as well. So the thought is just to get it. And then the action is to use it in its, in its raw form, but also know we'll have other strategies in the future as well. All right, Scott, thank you so much for joining us. Um, love having you and your expertise on. So I want to just, just take a moment and explain to me your role with Eudaimonia and, and, and tell me why people should even listen to what you're about to say. Yeah, so uh, thanks for having me on. Uh, basically, I'm the chief investment officer for Eudaimonia Group, and so I, I help clients and advisors figure out how they should allocate their money, how they should invest it, how does that match up with their risk tolerance or their uh, time horizon profile. And so a lot of that is involved in actually picking securities that go into the portfolios and then selecting how that portfolio should be allocated. And been doing this now for, for more than 25 years. Super. Okay. So you're like the perfect person to talk to. And we're going to do something very high level because you're always, like you said, picking securities. And I want to really focus on three main buckets. And I want you to kind of explain what those are because these are the words that people always hear your stocks, your bonds, and your alternative investments. Yep. So why don't we just start, start with stocks and, uh, and take me through when you hear the word stocks, what does that mean? And then we can kind of parse out what that means, you know, the definitions below that as well. Yeah. So if, if you're someone that's done very little investing or has never done any investing, the, the, the word stocks can seem a little bit strange to you. Uh, in, in our you know language, we use stocks and equities interchangeably, but stocks essentially are ways for companies to issue shares to the public that the public can purchase. And what that does is that provides capitalization to that company. So the company, in, in simple terms, may issue 100 shares of their stock. And as investors buy that stock, the stock price goes up because that stock becomes more in demand. And that allows the company to use that equity for purposes of keeping the company running, whether that's you know adding new buildings or, or, or purchasing things for the company. Um, and so then within that framework of stocks, you have different types. You have large caps. Those are companies that typically are, you know, greater than, than, than five or six billion dollars in terms of their market capitalization, what they're worth. Then you've got mid caps, which, you Can know, I stop some, you real quick. Yes. And just, and it's, give me an example of a few large cap companies. Yeah. So people think large cap. What would be a couple examples? Yeah, so on the technology space, you might think of IBM as, as a large cap company. In the uh, consumer space, you may think of Home Depot as a large cap company. So those are okay. companies that, that have been around a while, that are seasoned, that have a much larger market value than other companies. Okay, super. Now, would you say, because I know this word gets thrown out there too, are these blue chip companies? 
are these are those different? Like, what's what's a blue chip company? Yeah, so that that uh, definition can vary as well. We typically look at it in terms of growth companies and value companies, and so your blue okay. chips could be uh, some of both. Your your uh, large cap value companies, you may think of companies like Exxon, which is in the energy space, and that company pays a dividend. So it's it's a it's a good strong dividend that the investor can earn if they own the stock. But typically speaking, that stock tends to be undervalued relative to the rest of the market. So if you think about your Googles and your Apples, which have a very high market cap, I think Apple just just crossed over uh, $3 trillion in terms of market cap. Um, but, but on top of that, you've got growth companies that are more momentum. They don't produce much in dividends, and they tend to be more overvalued. Most of those are in the technology space. So if you look at kind of what we just talked about, Exxon and, and Apple, you've got a technology company and an energy company. One is growth, one's value. Gotcha. And when you're talking dividends, you're talking about a company. Well, there are two things I just want to make sure are clear. So market cap is the value of the company. Right. Like if you were to take all the shares and say, you know, you got 3 million shares and each share is worth $10, it's a $30 million company. Just right. multiply the number of shares by the value of the shares. Um, so you have these companies and then the dividend is they, they make all this money every year and then they pay out a certain amount of money yep. to the people that own shares. And that's, that's the dividend. So your value companies tend to pay that income and the growth companies tend to pay less or none, right. um, of the profits that they make. Okay. Yeah. So that's large cap. So I just wanted to make sure that, that people kind of know a couple of those names. So, and I'm going to get a quiz cause we're going to go down the line here. So we'll probably go to mid caps and we'll get some names there too. So. Take me through what, uh, what what kind of the mid caps are. Yeah, so if you think about mid caps, and there, this definition varies depending on you know what money manager you're kind of talking to, but generally speaking, it's somewhere around two billion to about seven billion in that range. And, and mid caps are unique because more than likely they were once small caps, but they've grown in value to that mid cap space. And if the company has run well, at some point it'll become a large cap company if if the company continues to do well. So you think about names like especially in the banking space, someone like a Regions. Regions Bank is, is kind of a regional bank um, in the southeast and uh, in, in, uh, in, uh, west. Um, and so that company is a mid-cap value company. It tends to produce dividends because it's in the banking financial space, but it's more of a mid-cap. It's not a big bank, and it's not a tiny bank either. So that's kind of mm -hmm. an example of a mid-cap company. Yeah. I, always, I don't know why. I always think of Wendy's. Is I think McDonald's is your large cap, and yep. then Wendy's is, even though I like Wendy's more, they're a mid-cap company. They're not as big. That's right. Um, all right. So then let's go through to so large cap, mid-cap, and then and then what? And then small cap. And small cap is kind of weird because it could be uh, a small cap company or it could be a micro cap. Both of those tend to fall under a billion in uh, market cap. Um, so those you know those companies are are typically more volatile. Um, because there are fewer of them and they're kind of in that still startup type of phase, not, not necessarily the first three years, but, you know, the first 10 years of, of development, they tend to be more risky. So you could buy a small cap company that goes bankrupt. So there's a lot more risk inherent there. But with that risk comes a lot more return. So your large cap company, you think about a seasoned company like Home Depot, typically, you know, does the same type of revenue year in and year out you know, ex except for a recession. And so it's very seasoned and, and very predictable. Small cap company, it's still in that, that beginning stages of development. And so they could take a risk on a product or a service and it not pan out. 
and they, you know, they, they fall down in value considerably. So, you know, if they do do well, if they pick the right product, the right service to offer, they could explode. You know, someone like a, like a Lululemon several years ago would have been a small cap because it was brand new. It was, it was a new type of uh, clothing uh, line and it wasn't sure it was going to take off. And yet, you know, for a lot of ladies, it, it became extremely popular and now they've, they've taken off and now they're a mid or large cap stock, depending on what day you look at them. Yeah. I, I like Lulu too. <laughs> I wear Lulu. Yeah. They, they, they're now in the men's clothing line. They're doing well there as well. Yeah. Yeah. So there's, those are kind of like, I like those are the easy buckets. You explain the growth and the value. So let's transition. Let's talk a little bit about fixed income and, and what that means. Um, bonds, you know, if you want to kind of break down what that is and kind of the different buckets there. Yeah. So instead of a company issuing shares to get capital, in this case, what a company will do is they will actually issue debt. So let's just, let's keep it in simple terms. They issue one bond, and let's say that bond uh, has a total um, a total uh, 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 amount of let's say a million dollars. They will take that million dollars as p people buy the bonds. So people buy the bonds. The the investor is actually giving the money to the company so that the company can use it today. And the company is going to pay that investor an interest rate, typically on a monthly mm -hmm. basis, for the for the rights to have that money. So if you're an individual investor and you buy a bond worth $10,000, you're giving the company the, the $10,000 today. They are issuing you shares of that bond, and they're going to pay you an interest rate depending on how much of that bond you purchase. So let's use simple terms. You've bought $10,000. They're going to issue you a 1% interest rate, which would be pretty low. But they're going to issue you 1%, and so you're going to get $100 a month uh, in terms of interest to you as the, as the purchaser of that bond. The difference between the stock and the, and the bond is that the bond has a stated maturity. So that bond may last for 10 years. It's a 10-year bond of $10,000. They're going to pay you monthly interest for 10 years, and then that bond matures. And when it matures, you basically now have no more interest in the company, unlike a stock that you could choose to own in perpetuity. So that's the difference between right. stocks and bonds. Bonds typically are labeled as debt because, again, the company is issuing debt. They're taking your money today, and they're paying you interest. They owe you that interest. If that bond fails to pay the interest to you as the investor, that is going into default, and that's where a bond can get extremely risky. So that kind of gets us into different levels of bonds. If you think about the federal government, they issue bonds uh, in different maturity ranges, uh, the most secure being three-month T-bills, which is obviously three months in maturity, very safe, versus a 30-year bond, which has a lot more risk with it. And so that's those are government bonds. Now, government bonds tend to be a little bit higher in terms of quality because if the government fails, we all fail, uh, versus right. a corporate bond. So a corporate bond is on a different level and could, could carry right. a higher level of risk. So the corporate. Can I stop you yeah. and just kind of go with like just to with all bonds? Take me through the the, the risk levels. I know there's do you have in terms of maturity risk? Because you were talking about that with that the three month to, to thirty year. Uh, take me through maturity risk and then just credit risk. So because I think a lot of times people will think like you know they'll see in their say their four hundred one k or options they'll say this is a short term bond, intermediate or long term bond. And so maybe you can explain that and then say, you know, a, a junk bond versus a, you know, a, a high quality or an investment grade bond. So if you could just kind of break those two kind of risks out, I think that would really help people to 
set the stage for what bonds are. Yeah, so if you think about a chart, on, on the end of the chart near the corner, that those are your shorter maturity bonds. You buy the bond, let's say a T-bill, you purchase it today, three months from now it matures, and that, that holding goes away. So that's on this far left-hand side of the curve. As the curve goes up, your maturity levels go out. And so if I'm going to buy a 30-year bond, that means I'm not going to get my money back until 30 years from now. So there's a lot more risk there because a lot more things can happen in a 30-year time span. Mm -hmm. We can go through three different recessions. The government can go through multiple phases of fiscal spending or cutting fiscal spending. So I've got a lot more risk with a 30-year bond before I get my money back versus a three-month T-bill. And so that's, right. that's uh, maturity risk. Then you've got credit risk. Again, we talked about this before, a, a, a government bond is going to have a much lower level of risk because it's a higher quality bond. The chances of the government paying me back over the next three months or 30 years is a lot higher than a company paying me back because a company can go through a lot of different risks. It could go through bankruptcy. If the government goes into bankruptcy, well, again, we're all in trouble. So in terms of credit risk, you've got much higher rated government bonds than you do corporate bonds. Now, within the corporate space, though, you may have a company like a Home Depot. We talked about that. Very consistent, you know, typically year in and year out, they, they do well. So the credit rating on that bond is probably going to be higher than a credit rating on a small cap company. Again, if we kind of use the Lululemon example, when they were first getting started and if they had issued debt, well, we weren't really sure what was going to happen with their clothing line. Was it going to take off or not? So there's more risk there. That credit rating would be much lower, or it could even be what they call junk bonds. Anything below triple B rated is considered a high-yield bond or a junk bond because you're taking a lot more risk there. Again, I don't know for sure if it's a 10-year bond, I'm going to get my money back in 10 years. Maybe, maybe not. So it has a lower credit rating. Now, again, in that space, if the company does really well like Lululemon did, I might do exceptionally well. So that bond actually not only paying me higher dividends or higher interest rates may actually appreciate over time if the company does well. So there is a lot more risk there on the lower end of the credit quality space. Right. I think we'll do this in like a investments 102, but we'll start to parse out. I know because I, I for people that are listening, they're like, they're, they may have questions on these. I don't want to cover it, but I do want to acknowledge things like convertible bonds, preferred securities, things like that. I think we'll do that in a, in a separate one, but just know what I think what you were talking about duration, you know, maturity time frame, and then credit quality are really kind of the, the, the factors you want to be aware of when you're looking at fixed income and bonds. Uh, but I want to shift from there and I want to talk a little bit about uh, alternative investments because I think of all the things, you know, people hear about the stock market and you can see the numbers and you, there's stations that are dedicated to watching it move around and, getting all fired up <laughs> every day. You can see the same thing for bonds, but alternatives tend to be a little more opaque and like what they even are. So can you just describe, you know, very high level, what an alternative invest, what that even means, and then give a couple examples and we can parse it out. Yeah, so your, your alternative space is really much more wide open. Uh, unlike a, a true uh, stock or a true bond, that definition is pretty pat. Alternatives can incorporate a whole different host of different types of securities. The, the key with alternatives is it has a much lower correlation to stocks or bonds. And what I mean by correlation is when, when a stock is appreciating and the, and the equity market is doing extremely well, 
an alternative investment could be doing well or it could be not doing as well, depending on what the, the, the function of the alternative investment is. But the key is it adds an extra layer of diversification. So instead of just owning stocks and bonds, I can also own a little bit of alternatives. Now, alternatives is, is a wide open definition. Some of us consider real estate, for example, a, a form of alternative investment. It's not equities and it's not bonds. It's real estate. You're, you're purchasing uh, either land or you're purchasing buildings. And in, incorporated in there is a different type of structure. It's a little bit similar to debt in the sense that there's a mortgage, perhaps, on that investment. Mm -hmm. And so that's going to pay a specific uh, amount. And it, it is considered a, a debt. But you're also getting the land or the building on top of that. So it's also an asset similar to equity. So it's a little bit of both. Or you've got other types of investments that will actually do something that is opposite of equities. If you're an equity investor, you're purchasing the stock. An alternative investment might short the stock. So instead of buying mm -hmm. shares in that stock, they want to go negative on that stock. They think the stock's not going to do well. Again, let's go back to our Lululemon example. If somebody thought at the beginning that Lululemon was not going to do well, instead of purchasing the stock, thinking it might do well, they might short the stock in, in the equity in, in the alternative investments market by either buying futures on the stock or selling futures on the stock or buying a put, an option on the stock that would go higher if the stock goes lower. So it's a way to hedge, so to speak. You could actually do both. I could actually purchase the Lululemon stock, but if I think it's going to go through a rough patch the next 12 months, I could actually also buy a put on it so that my losses are limited. If the stock goes down, I do well on the put. If the stock goes up, I do well on the shares that I purchase. So all, there's all sorts of alternative baskets, but typically what they are doing is different from what you're doing inside of equities or stocks. And so you've got hedge funds that will hedge markets. Mm -hmm. You've got managed futures products that, that simply will, will use uh, commodities typically um, as their instrument. And then you've got commodities themselves, which are not like equities, so to speak. Um, commodities, you could actually purchase um, futures on the corn market or futures on the cotton market. Uh, and those are a little bit different than just equities or, or fixed income. But if you take all three baskets that we've talked about, equities, debt, or, or bonds, and alternatives, you, you build yourself a nice portfolio with a true asset allocation that when something's not doing well, something else will be doing well. Right. So I really want to cap this off because you just touched on it. It's all great. You learn all this. What's the point? Like, why have all these different things? Like, what are you really trying to achieve by using all of this? What What is the goal? Right. So, for example, let's let's take the 2008 uh, example because most people remember that. 2008, we had a huge financial crisis and the markets were down. I think from peak to trough, the U.S. equities were down about 50%. So if, if I owned equities in that time frame, again, I lost about 50%. If I owned bonds, I did okay because bonds held up relatively well. Now, that depends on which bonds, but let's just assume that I had typical government bonds. I actually made a little bit of money, and I also got some, divid some interest payments on that. So I probably broke about even there. Um, and so you know, equities down 50%, bonds up, say, 4 to 5%, give or take, depending on which bond you own. And then my alternatives mm -hmm. could have done well or not have done well, depending on which alternatives I own. But if I was short the market, if my equities were down 50 and I was short in the market, then my alternatives were up roughly 50. And so what that does is that gives me nice asset allocation 
and reduces my risk. So let's, let's walk through this example. I have 100% equity. In 2008, I lost 50%. Okay? If I had 100% in bonds, I didn't lose anything, but I only made about 4%. If I had alternatives, I could have made 50% or more, depending on which type of alternatives I own. So if I, lost 50, if I had just equities, I lost 50%. If I owned all three, I probably made some money during that time frame. So that diversification and that asset allocation protected me versus owning 100% of equity. Right. I think it's a really good example. And, and I know someone will think, well, what about in 2009 when the market was, you know, straight up? And I think that's where you talk, we'll, you know, again, we'll talk about this in a future episode. You don't have a static allocation. Right. It has to be something that's dynamic. Um, it has to be, you know, based on a risk tolerance that you have. But for this purpose of this particular, you know, lesson, it was really like, let's just break out what these things are. And then let's go into, you know, in future episodes, kind of talking about like, well, then how do you put these pieces together most effectively? And I think you're just your simple example of you could have had these three different scenarios play out um, is a good one to just kind of, you know, I think it's a good place to, to stop. So people can say like, oh, now that I understand what they are, this is the impact, real world impact in an event that I remember. Right. So uh, really appreciate you being on, Scott. Thanks for uh, giving us that knowledge. And I look forward to doing investing 102 with you very soon. Yeah, absolutely. Looking forward to it. Thank you for listening to the Thought in Action podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to follow the podcast and leave a review. For more information on what's going on in the world of wealth, make sure to follow Family Fortune Financial on your favorite social media platforms. I look forward to you joining again soon.